Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome to our special broadcast, Coronavirus Changed Forever, from the CBS Audio Network. What is ahead in our battle against this novel coronavirus? How quickly can we reopen the country, or can we? Aaron Bromage is an associate professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and his writings on this have become a popular and important read. Most of his current work is focusing on the evolution of the immune system, the immunological mechanisms responsible for protection of infectious disease, and the design and use of vaccines to control infectious disease. Now, he also wants to make sure he is not holding himself out as an expert on the virus or epidemiology and that he relies on all of the amazing scientists publishing and discussing their work for the material and the content when he posts and in the conversation we're about to have. So mainly what we're doing here is having Dr. Bromage translate their work so that we lay people can understand what's going on during this pandemic. It's good to have you with us. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you for having me on today. Let's take a look at the summer that is quickly approaching. What we've seen so far looks like a downward curve in new cases, though not as steep as we'd like, but in fact, not as steep at all. But apparently that may be leading us astray. What's going on? Well, you know, we're looking at, you know, the new cases. And when you look at it from a country's point of view, there is certainly a trend being shown there. But, you know, as has been pointed out many times, the country is huge and has lots of different er like lots of different areas and different things happening in that area. So you've really got to look at the trends that are happening in your state or in your region to really understand what is going on with this pathogen and what reopening should look like. So one of the things I guess we're seeing is that it looks like this is receding a bit because the national numbers seem to be flattening a bit, but that may be because New York is flattening and the rest of the country actually is not at all. Yeah. So again, it's really individual where it is. So, you know, two of the states that have been the most affected, um, you know, is my home state in Massachusetts. Um, and then you look at, you know, New York, um, they've both done very well at reaching the peak and, you know, turning it around. So the numbers of new cases per day are declining really quickly. And so the, the effect of those two states on the rest of the country's numbers, when you look at it as a whole, really don't give you the story that there are other states around the country where the peak has not been reached. And in fact, it's, you know, it's still going up. I have a lot of friends who get mad every time they go into a grocery store and see somebody who is not wearing a mask or 
a runner goes down the street and they're not wearing masks and they're going, oh my gosh, those people could be throwing sweat onto me and all of that. Are those the places where we should be concerned? Well, I think that if you are in a grocery store, you should do your part of just making this better for everyone. And you should have a mask on. Um, if you can drop down your respiratory emissions into that environment, um, you're making it safer for other customers and especially you're making it safer for the workers that are in there. So you should do your part with that. But when we're looking outdoors, if you can adequately socially distance, if you can get that six feet away from people, um, you know, masks will help, but they're not as important as they are in enclosed environments. So the places that we are looking at, I take it, are mainly closed environments. Maybe that's why we're seeing it so much in, say, meatpacking plants where people are just working very closely to one another. Yeah. So any environment that um, has, you know, a lot of people uh, in close contact. So, you know, if you're in a warehouse and people are really spread out over a far distance, it's not the same as being in a call center or a meatpacking plant where you bring a lot of people uh, close together. Um, if the air in that air, like in that room is just recycled to keep it cool or keep it warm, then you're not bringing in fresh air and diluting down the virus that is being released by people. Um, and so, you know, you've got those two things going together. Um, and then, you know, when you start, you know, looking at, you know, especially cold room environments, you know, the virus enjoys the cold a little bit. There were studies done, um, you know, in March showing that the virus remains viable in colder conditions for longer. And I think that might be part of why we're seeing these things in the, the meatpacking. Um, and then as soon as you bring talking or yelling into the equation, there's just more that comes out of your mouth in regards to these tiny little droplets of, it's hard to think of them as spit, but, you know, respiratory droplets coming out. Um, if you have to yell for your workmate to hear you, um, you're releasing more into the air and that just creates this, you know, whole mess that leads to these big cluster outbreaks in these environments. And that comes up in a meatpacking plant because of just the noise of the industrial machinery in those places. You're not whispering a lot to talk to the person next to you. Yeah, well, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time inside a meatpacking plant, but I can only imagine with, you know, fans to keep it cold and the machines to, you know, process the, the meat and things like that, that it's not a quiet environment. Uh, and so you really need to, you know, be communicating and talking and yelling. And you've got to do that at a higher voice than what you say would you know, in a nice, quiet office. That would also explain why some of the early spreading events were weddings. I mean, people, you know, the music is playing, there's dancing going on. You, you're, again, not able to whisper and hear anybody. Yeah, true. But in a wedding situation, you've also got a lot of uh, touching, hugging, congratulations, um, you know, put your glass down, maybe someone else drinks out of it. I mean, there's a lot of other opportunities for disease transmission you know, to occur through either inanimate objects or through a handshake or a hug or a kiss. Um, but yeah, you know, you add all those things together, you know, potential respiratory transfer, but also transfer off hands and things like that. Um, it, it really is a, a concerning environment for that, for the spread. One of the things I didn't think of until you started talking earlier about things like fans is, here we are at the summer and we're going to have fans and air conditioning on and in places like restaurants, we may feel, hey, I'm fine. 
I'm sitting six feet away from anybody else. They've they've spread the tables away as restaurants start to open again, and I'm good. But maybe with the fans and the AC on, maybe I'm not. How does that work? You know, so each uh, each restaurant is going to be going to be different. You know, I think about the. Um, you know, restaurants where you have the huge exhaust fans above the table and maybe you're barbecuing your own food in front of you, everything's going to shoot up out of those. And that, you know, the chances for, you know, the virus to build up in that environment is probably going to be low. Um, I look at a couple of the restaurants that are close to me here that have, um, you know, they're indoors, but they have these beautiful big windows that they can open up um, and allow, you know, a breeze to roll through that's going to be really different than a restaurant that is, you know, tightly sealed with very little makeup air coming inside it. Um, you know, each one of them is going to be unique in regards to, you know, the risk that they pose so much so that if a place is really closed up, that maybe the six feet um, is not enough. And that's why you really have to drop those numbers down because every person in there that's talking um, is but if they're infected is potentially releasing the virus into, into the air and that can drift to the table beside you um, or across the table to the people you're having, um, you know, lunch or dinner with. This whole thing of being in closed spaces, the, the numbers that we have right now so far is at least 44% of all infections. So we're talking basically about almost half. And the majority of community-acquired transmissions come from people who have no symptoms yet. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the 44% comes from, you know, a study um, that was done where they're doing really good contact tracing. So um, this wasn't done in the United States because we don't have that data yet because the the outbreak was just so... um, We were late to the party to start testing and it got so big so quickly that contact tracing almost became futile. But in the countries that had the boots on the ground and were, you know, able to really invest in testing and tracing and isolating, they did these beautiful studies and found that this, you know, where transmission was actually occurring. I would love to have that data from the United States, and I'm sure it will come. You know, if we invest the resources in this, we're going to really understand how it works here, which is really important. Immunologist Aaron Bromage, and we will talk with him about why some countries are not hit as hard as the United States is coming up in our next segment. You're listening to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with immunologist Aaron Bromage about contact tracing and how that might be used to keep the virus from hitting us as hard as it has. The places where we have figures, we're, we're talking about places that have been able to re- turn around their peaks pretty quickly. And we're talking about Australia, New Zealand, South Korea. And one of the differences between them and we here in the United States are things like contact tracing and testing and isolation. How far behind are we from where we need to be? You know, it's hard to put a, you know, a figure on how far behind, but when I, you know, I I get sort of pretty happy to think that, you know, I am, I am an Australian and the way in which they put the response together was, you know, they got 
on board with this really quickly. Um, they started testing really aggressively and they put in a great public health program to be able to not only identify who was infected, but who that person had come in contact with, you know, in these critical exchanges. So somebody that you talked to 10 minutes, you know, talked to for 10 minutes, or did you spend, you know, half an hour, an hour in an enclosed environment with these people? And so they went out and found those people and then said, you need to self-isolate so that you don't become part of this transmission chain. And by doing that so hard and, you know, they went all in on this in Australia and New Zealand, you know, definitely in South Korea, but I'm more familiar with those two. Because they went in so hard with this, they caught the transmissions early. Um, you know, Australia had, I think it was 5,800 um, cases that were associated with travel. So people had gone overseas and then come back in and brought it in. They got those and they got the people that they came in contact with and got them isolated. And that left only, you know, the last time I looked at the data with, you know, about a thousand to fifteen hundred cases that were actually community acquired. And some of those are hard to trace because you don't necessarily know where that index case was to start it off. But they did such a great job of working out who was the high risk and get them out of society so that they don't cause more cases. The US. Um, they said it just got so big, it was almost impossible to work out who was infected. We didn't have the testing of the, the magnitude that we needed to get those people and their contacts out of circulation, out of society. So what we're looking for now, and this is what I look at in Massachusetts and in Ro Rhode Island, they are getting the numbers way down to daily cases per day. Um, you know, they're testing lots. And so now they're under 10% of new cases per day of their tests are positive. And so now they can really implement the contact tracing program to identify a positive and their contacts and get them out. So now we're going to have that data. Now we're going to have that public health program in place. And that's going to make a world of difference for what summer looks like in Massachusetts and Rhode Island um, and what the fall looks like. So give me a picture, as disgusting as it may be, of what this looks like. How does it go from one person to another? Is it my talking, my singing? Well, probably not my singing because people run away from that anyway, so they're generally more than six feet away. But is it, um, is it you know, people yelling, spitting? How does this go from one person to another, and what can we do to minimize that? Yeah, so we don't have that yet for this virus. I mean, you know, we're four months into this and still trying to work out how it all works. So we have to take examples from um, respiratory viruses that have been well studied, such as influenza. Um, and there is a whole area of science that, you know, I haven't delved into, but when they're looking at just breathing called tidal breathing and how many droplets come out and those type of things. And it's really amazing what these people do. But we know there's just sort of a, a scale. So if you're just sitting, mouth closed, breathing through your nose, um, you're releasing very little virus into the environment. Um, if you're open mouth and breathing, again, it's a little bit more. Um, but then when you start speaking, um, what is coming out of your mouth, um, respiratory droplet-wise, increases about tenfold. Um, then you get to yelling or singing and you're looking at another 10 to 100 fold increase on what comes out of you there. So there's all of these sort of steps that go up. Um, you get up to a cough then. 
And a cough then puts out a lot of projectiles that come out and fairly large ones as well. And then, you know, in regards to influenza, a sneeze then, a sneeze because it's ballistic, um, things come out of you very, very fast. Um, it really can spray them quite a distance and put quite a lot of virus out into the environment. So I'm looking at the phase one reopening ideas. And some of these, it really kind of depends on the place. For instance, uh, some places of worship can open with strict capacity limits. But I imagine that there would be a difference whether you're at the kind of place of worship where everybody just kind of sits and listens to the pastor, minister, rabbi, imam, whatever, uh, you know, quietly in the kind of place where people are responding a lot or shouting or singing and things like that, that there would be a difference in safety between those two places, even though we would just describe them both as places of worship. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Every different situation is unique. Um, but, you know, when you get more singing and more yelling, the, what we're seeing with the data would suggest that these are those environments that you would like to, you know, you would like to avoid. Um, but then you've got to factor in, um, you know, airflow. You know, if it's, you know, I've seen some beautiful, um, you know, churches, especially in the southern part of the country that can open up and really get good breeze through there. So you drop the numbers down. Um, you know, there, there are ways to mitigate. We just need good plans to do it and great direction on how to do it from, you know, the state or federal government. One of the other phase one things, and I kind of get this because I'm anxious to get back and because it makes us healthy, but gyms can reopen. And that just seems like a really bad idea. Yeah, I have to admit, I was scratching my head a little bit at that one. Um, you know, and I heard some, you know, some good plans that came with it. Um, but then there's some, you know, other ones. And I, again, they're really going to have to think about this. Like capacity will be absolutely important. Um, and I think that if you're out there and working with machines and bikes and things like that, that I think you can potentially work out a way to engineer capacity and cleanliness. Um, one of the the interesting ones I heard, which sounds like it's a good way forward was, you know, they may open to a limited number of people for an hour and then close down and clean and then open up again and sort of go in shifts. Um, and you could theoretically see how that might work to lower down, you know, the chances of exposure. Um, you know, talking a lot of things about non-contact entry where you don't have to show cards and things like, so there's ways to do this, you know, close down um, locker rooms, that sort of stuff. Um, the one that does worry me that I, I can't get my head around, um, you know, how to do it safely are the, the classes, the, when you get groups of people together, um, you know, doing a, a large group class, um, you know, if you're in a conditioned closed environment with lots of other people, deep breathing and you deep breathing, I, I, I can't see how you can reconcile the biology with reopen with doing that. So, um, I hope there's people smarter than me working on that particular problem, but that one to me just sort of sets off alarm bells a little bit. Okay, final thing. Heading into the summer, what trends, good or bad, are we going to be looking at to try and figure out where we are in this battle? Yeah, so I'm going to use the Massachusetts example because that's home and it's the one I'm most familiar with. So we're looking at daily cases per day, just they need to drop, they need to keep coming down. Um, and they are, but they need to be coming down with us testing more. So if, if they're testing harder and finding fewer, that's the exact trend that you want to be seeing with this. Um, and so 
you know, we need to be watching that, like test more and more people. So we're at 10 to 12,000 people to, you know, a day sort of on average at the moment. If they take that up to 20,000 a day and are still finding only a few hundred, that's the trend that we want to see. Um, we've also got to get rid of the backlog of people that are in hospitals. Um, we built an incredible surge capacity here in Massachusetts, sort of, you know, beyond what our hospitals could normally handle. And thankfully, I don't think they were used very much, which is just a wonderful thing. Um, but when we look at our standard capacity of ICU beds, we got pretty close to what is normal in the state. So those ICU numbers, the numbers of people that are sitting in critical care at a hospital need to come way down because at the moment we've stopped everything else, you know, all other hospital procedures other than emergencies, we need to be able to get back to normal to be able to handle what day-to-day -day is in regards to hospital life. So they need to come down and the numbers of people in hospitals in general with COVID-19 needs to come down. So there's a, a trend and it's looking really quite promising in Massachusetts, you know, and Rhode Island. Um, and I just, I want to keep seeing that trend coming down. Start to get a little bit more cautious if we start seeing those daily numbers come back up. Um, and that's what we are, you know, cases will precede ICU beds. So we're really making sure that, you know, case numbers keep dropping and go in that direction while we're clearing our hospital beds. Aaron Bromage is an associate professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth and is helping us really get through all the scientific information from so many different sources and sort out what means something as we try and struggle through our daily lives while battling this novel coronavirus. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gil, for having me on the show. Welcome back to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. With gyms closed, it's been hard to stay in shape during the pandemic. The easiest to get takeout isn't always the easiest thing to eat when you're trying to take off pounds. Marietta Alessi will be working with us now on trying to get some exercise and trying to stay healthy in every possible way during this pandemic. She is senior social media manager at Shape Magazine. And because of that, Marietta, first of all, hi, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Good to talk with you. Good to talk with you. And I was hoping you'd be great if we're going to do this segment about staying in shape. But you're also in touch with some 7 million followers among the many social media ways that Shape stays in touch with its readers. Just generally first, what are you hearing about them, about their, their needs? So that's very interesting, Gil. I think the most important thing that I've learned in this entire um, pandemic is that you need to be flexible with yourself. And I'm not just talking about exercise. It's all about routines. And what we've been noticing within our Instagram following specifically, people are messaging us and saying, why isn't yoga as calming as it used to be? I used to be really into boxing, but now I just don't find I'm into it anymore. And it's really frustrating. And so with that, we've been talking to a lot of mental health experts. We've been talking to sports medicine doctors and a, a bunch of other experts to find out why this is and how we can make the most about this time, not only for your physical health, but also for your mental health. And so in talking with the experts, the one thing that was very clear when we were talking to mental health experts, when we were talking to trainers, it's all about self-compassion because what was happening 
pre-quarantine is not might not be serving you now. I've noticed a lot of people in even people who are exercising at a gym or something like that are having a hard time kind of staying motivated right now because they're thinking, well, you know, what for? I'm not going out. I'm just trying not to get sick. That's right. And one of the things that I thought was also very interesting that our trainers were saying about how to stay consistent and how to stay motivated is about treating it like an appointment treat your workouts like an appointment with a friend. So you might not be one of those people that likes to do visual workouts or Zoom workouts with another person, but how about just having an accountability to text someone and say, hey, you know, I was really thinking about doing this yoga class and I just wanted to let you know that I'm gonna try and do it. So if you could message me at noon and let me know how it went. The whole idea is feeling connected to something so then you are motivated to keep returning to that habit. For people living alone, this is an especially daunting time. You can more easily get depressed. You can more easily just get angry. Uh, if you don't have a job that you can immediately go back to or a, a social life or the things that used to fill up your day and make life seem meaningful, it's easy, and this affects you emotionally as well as physically, it's easy just to go into a, a funk or let the blood pressure rise and just get ticked off about what we find ourselves in. And I think that's where the self-compassion comes to play. And I think this exercise is so important to do. So one of the biggest takeaways that I got from this whole experience was how to show yourself self-compassion. It may not be natural for someone to show self-compassion. So what one of the mental health experts suggested to us was pretend that you're talking to yourself as a five-year-old. How would you show compassion to that person? If they're really ticked off right now, it may, you, you wouldn't want to get angry at this five-year-old. How would you meet them halfway? And so a few different ways you can approach this is by thinking, what do I need to hear right now? The whole idea is that if you're not happy where you are, be flexible. So if I do want to exercise because that will, you know, get my endorphins going and I'm going to feel better mentally as well as emotionally and kind of stay in shape and all that good stuff, where am I going for that? There are so many ways that you can get fit at home with just using what's in your home. So we just launched a wellness series at Shape called Wellness from Home, and it features trainers showing how to use regular household items such as suitcases, such as pots, even laundry. Using a laundry bag simply that's filled to the top, you can use it as a kettlebell. You can swing with it and use similar movement patterns. It's absolutely amazing. If if there was one primary thing for us to keep in mind during this time to try and stay in either emotional and physical health or both, what what, what do you think we should kind of keep in front of us? I would say just to be gentle with yourself and realize that we are all in this. We are all going through this. Through this entire experience, I've realized that this is just a great experiment on what the human condition is. And one of the other things that makes me so grateful is that we have a Facebook community of now 11,000 women. Um, it's called our Shape Goal Crushers page. And it's all around the world, not even the country. And people are posting about the good, the bad, and how they're moving. And it is just so amazing to see that we're all going through this. So I encourage you to find a community. And again, you don't have to post if you don't feel comfortable posting in it. But just being a, a follower and seeing how everybody is going through this will make you feel better and will get you moving. Marietta Alessi is Senior Social Media Manager at Shape, where she gets to keep an eye on all the ideas that you are picking up on through Shape Magazine. Thank you very much. Have a good one. <laughs> 
You're listening to the special Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. If by some chance you should remember Alice Cooper's song, School's Out, you may remember the lyrics, out for summer, out till fall, we might not come back at all. School's out forever, school's out for summer, school's out with fever. Oh, you forgot about that line. School's out completely. Well, it isn't out completely, but it is different. And teachers and students are communicating, teaching, and learning in ways that may extend far into the fall and beyond. That is a concern for BAR, which stands for Building Assets, Reducing Risks. Its goal is to see that students get a quality education, no matter their school, their background, race, ethnicity, or economic background race, ethnicity, or economic background. That, of course, is a challenge in itself. This virus has only made it more so. Angela Jarabek is developer of Building Assets Reducing Risks, the BAR model, a licensed K-12 teacher and a secondary school counselor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Angela, welcome. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you so much. Before we get into what's going on now, can you explain to me a bit what BAR is? Absolutely. So the model is really predicated on two pillars that we feel that schools need to really operationalize. One is building positive, intentional relationships. Those relationships need to be staff to student, student to student, but also really importantly, staff to staff. And the second pillar is data. We've got to have transparency in data. So the math teacher needs to know how the student is doing in a variety of classes, not just math. And we also need to make sure that we're picking up qualitative data. So we need to make sure that the observations we're having, either in person or now virtually, are being utilized to make sure that students are really thriving. So you've got these two pillars of um, relationships and data, and that kind of glues the foundation of our work together. Yeah, that is fascinating because I don't think my calculus teacher and my English teacher ever talked to one another, even socially, much less talked about you know, me individually as a student. So it's it's really interesting model, and I know it's been working around the country. Let's talk about where we are now and how this might all work with it. My first thought, of course, is so many schools are reaching out using technology, but a lot of the kids who are most in danger of losing out here have little or no access to it. Not every kid has a laptop, desktop, or even a good enough connection or data plan to be able to use their phone for these things. So how is that affecting what's going on? So I think really what's happened is now that we have gone distance learning, what's happened is we really have highlighted these inequalities that we've got in society. So your first point is technology, internet. Do you even have internet? And you know, do we have to have a hotspot that I'm working underneath a, a light in the middle of the night in a street corner to you know be able to do my homework? So what is the internet access that we've had? I think the other piece is district readiness for this was incredibly varied. I mean, some schools were pretty seamless, other schools hadn't done much with distance learning, so the teachers hadn't been trained, um, not to mention devices. And then obviously there's a variety of family engagement pieces. I think all families want their children to be successful, but some families don't have the same time or resources to be able to support the kids. So all of these inequities that had existed before became pretty obvious when we moved to these distance learnings, which I think is then what's really kind of showing up in terms of some schools having frustration, and how do we kind of move forward? But um, I, I will say the one continuous piece that we're kind of really feeling is this need for relationships. And I think that has really solidified what we knew schools needed to do kind of all along. So how we both have 
accessibility to you know everyone that's doing this at the same time we're having a sense of connection i think is a, a really key piece that connection with teachers and and also just with this community is one of the things that helps prevent dropouts I and mean, when you break that connection of course um that's got to be a problem so tell me how schools are dealing with that so I will say, so we've got 170 schools that we're working with, and I am incredibly proud of our schools because almost all of our schools are in connection with all of their students, which is no small feat. So when you have, um, you know, huge high schools that, you know, have, you know, 3,000 kids and they say, we know where all of our kids are. They may not be doing their work. They may not even be making great choices. But we're in connection with our with our kids. I think that's an incredible testament, and I think that's what we really need to make sure that we're hanging on to. At the same time, we're in, in, engaging, you know, kids to continue to to um, really try to be able to dig in in whatever capacity they can. Now, I will share that I have incredible respect for for teachers, and I am confident that we will be able to address all these academic needs in um, ways that they always do when we get back together in person. But I think this this incredible need to stay in community is something that we really need to be leaning into. How Are there any tips you can give us on helping our kids stay up with their homework when in some areas we, it is an embarrassing thing for adults to admit, we don't understand what our eight-year-olds are doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go back to the fact that schools and educators have always been in a partnership but during distance learning, kind of based on proximity, that got flipped a bit because before, you know, the, the parents were supporting what the educators were doing, and now the educators are supporting what the parents are doing. So I think really leaning into that partnership. So know that I'm doing the same thing where it really is we got to bring your teacher in and we got to get that teacher back in. And I've seen some remarkable things that teachers are doing. So as much as you can make sure that there's a, a place for the work to happen and a system to have that happen, making sure we're leaning into those educators, because I do agree. Apparently math has changed again, even though I feel like my answer is the same number. I'm not going to show my work in the same way. But I think that the key piece is keeping those those relationships. And I think that also is a, a critical piece for the educators to have them continue to be part of that conversation. When we go back to school physically, teachers, students, administration, obviously we're going to need to address some different academic needs. Some of the kids will thrive during this. Some of them just will fall further behind. There's also going to be a need for us to again, make these contacts that you and I have been talking about in terms of what's going on with them emotionally and socially and catch up with all of that. So can you give me a preview of what's ahead when things go back to something that's relatively normal? I think the first piece is we are going to need to all um, assist everybody feeling safe again. So we just know even in terms of learning, the ability to, to learn is really impacted by kind of sense of safety and security and to absolutely recognize that even in the quote unquote best situation during a pandemic, this has been upsetting. So really getting that that sense of security and rhythm and um, uh, being cared about is going to be primary for kind of all adults. I think the other piece is right now is a really helpful time for educators to reflect on what did work and especially if we were going to have the potential of rolling doing this again, what didn't work? So the fact that we had to flip that switch so fast without having 
especially in mass, you know, a system in place. I think now being able to, to, to really make those considerations, I've seen some really um, fantastic and creative ideas in terms of the differentiation next fall is a given. I mean, I think we need to recognize that students are having a, a varied level of experience right now, but we also recognize the economy's taken a, a pretty big hit and there's gonna be, especially a number of recent college grads or people who are going to college that may not, um, that are available. So I've seen some really creative ideas of deploying you know, a lot more adults to tutor to be able to kind of assist with that. But I think the, the key piece is to, you know, gather the data we have now, really use evidence. I'm a huge believer in um, making sure that our data is driving our decisions. So making sure that we're using evidence-based practices at the same time that we're keeping those relationships intact so people can actually continue to learn and feel comfortable. And then we'll, we'll get through it because we always do. I think that's the perfect note for us to part. Angela Jarabek is developer of Building Assets, Reducing Risks, the BAR model, also a licensed K-12 through teacher in Minneapolis. Angela, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Among the cities hit the hardest by the virus is the hometown of CBS This Morning co-host Anthony Mason. Here he is in his New York. The heartbeat of New York has always been the throbbing energy of its street life and its people. Restless, striving, ready for anything. But for the past eight weeks... The city that never sleeps has been anesthetized. Even in Times Square, almost nothing moving. I think the soul of the city thrives on density. Valerie Paley is chief historian at the now-closed New York Historical Society. Is there a precedent for this? Nothing quite like this that's shut down the whole city. A century ago, during the pandemic of 1918... Spanish influenza gripped the city. Face masks were mandated by the Board of Health. Papers tracked the rising daily death toll, then too. And the city's health commissioner, Dr. Royal Copeland, launched an anti-spitting crusade. It helped. 20,000 died. But New York fared better than most major cities. In recent weeks, I've wandered the city where I was born, taking pictures. I didn't know what else to do. The scenes were both beautiful and heartbreaking. In the first few weeks of social distancing, I was startled to catch a couple kissing here. It felt illicit at first, then hopeful. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, the country's largest museum, would typically have up to 20,000 visitors a day this time of year. Today it's two. <laughs> two. You and me. Daniel Weiss is president and CEO of the Met. Has it ever been like this before? We've closed in moments of crisis and snowstorms and 9-11 for a few days, but never like this. Are you expecting when you do reopen that things will go back to normal? quickly? No. My own sense is that uh, we'll never see that normal again. What do you think something like this does to the soul of the city? It's a wonderful contemplative moment in a way if you can find a silver lining to this time. And we wind up appreciating what we're missing, I think, even more. 
Walking through New York, I've wondered what we'll remember most about this moment years from now. I hope it's this. The beautiful noise that sweeps across apartment blocks and intersections. Every evening at the stroke of seven, a tribute to healthcare workers, the heroes who fought the virus, but also a tribute to New York's own abiding spirit, the sound of a nearly 400-year-old city determined to endure. This city really does know how to survive. The city thrives on reinvention and uh, resilience. It's bound to survive. It has to survive. Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network is produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.